Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Well, today's audio is from this last Sunday. It's called You Can't Love Nobody If You Can't Love Yourself. And we are looking at what it means to actually care for ourselves and show compassion to ourselves. This is a far different thing than the narcissism of the world that we live in. But it also entails being reconciled to the worst parts of us. Maybe things from our past that we have used religion to avoid. And yet, if we can encounter God and the grace of God and extend that to those parts of us, it will work its way into compassion and love and care for other people. Because so often what fuels our moral outrage are the things that we're not facing within. So let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Last weekend, how many did? How many of y'all did your homework and watched Groundhog Day on Saturday or sometime? Okay, I, I like that. See, it was on all day. That's like Groundhog Day within a Groundhog Day. <laughs> so last week I did a, a, a message on Groundhog Day. Really, one of the uh, most spiritual philosophical movies that you can find out there. And if you didn't listen to it, go listen to it. It was a good message. But at the end of the message, I talked about how the Apostle Paul, uh, in, in Philippians chapter 4, how he had really experienced something that looked very similar to the lead character in Groundhog Day, um, in the sense that Paul is locked up in a prison on death row, and yet when he's writing the book of Philippians, it's one of the most upbeat, joyful, peaceful books in the whole Bible. And Paul actually says something in there that has been used by Christians and continues to be used by Christians all over. I can do, it's Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do y'all remember back in the 90s, I think it was, it was the fight where Mike Tyson bit uh, Holyfield's ear? Remember that one? What year was that? Somebody's... That was a long time ago. I think it was back in the 90s sometime. But Holyfield, when he comes out there, he's wearing this satin robe and and boxer shorts that are emblazoned with Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean to, to Holyfield? I can beat you up through Jesus who gives me strength. And nobody questions that. We're like, yes. And, and, you know, in the tradition that I grew up in, I, I came from a more kind of word of faith background in my early years of Christianity. This scripture from Paul was, was seen as a recipe for success. You can do whatever you want if you just have enough faith. If you just believe hard enough, Jesus is going to give you health, wealth, prosperity. You, can, you just got to name it and claim it. Can I get an amen? Amen. Not to have church up. And, and look. And look, I I do believe there is something to positive confession. I believe there is something to that. There is something to having a good attitude about the world around you. But that is not what the Apostle Paul was saying here. If it was, he's the biggest hypocrite of all because he's locked in prison. (laughs) If this whole 
if it's just a matter of you believe hard enough and you can get whatever you want, Paul was failing at it and we shouldn't take him seriously. Paul was not saying that. Paul was saying, I've learned the secret to happiness and it is learning to be content no matter what circumstance I am in because I have the nearness of God's presence with me and that will get me through anything. And folks, that's worth a lot more than having health and wealth and prosperity. That stuff's going to come and go throughout your life. But if you can learn contentment in all things, that's true happiness. And that's where Phil Connor got to in Groundhog Day. You know, So you can go listen back to that message. But in the same way that that passage by the Apostle Paul has been used in a very different way from the way Paul intended it, I want to read another passage today that is often... Uh, used in in a way that that probably doesn't get at what it actually means. This is on the front of your bulletin. It says, this is the Apostle Paul writing. Again, this is from Philippians, the previous chapter. Chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I've heard numerous Christians over the years when it comes to this passage use this as, I'm going to do my best to just forget everything I've ever done. I'm saved. Is anybody a fan of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's one of my favorite movies. You know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's, there's these three characters. One of them is George Clooney. I forget who the other two guys are. But they're, they're on the run. They break out of prison, and they're, they're, you know, on the run, I think up in Mississippi somewhere. And they're out in the field one day. I mean, out in the out in the forest, and they're they're trying to to escape the law, evade the law, and they're cooking up some gophers over the campfire. And then all of a sudden, you hear these people singing, "I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way." And they see all these people going down to the river to get baptized. Well, one of them's like. He just runs out there, and he gets baptized, and he comes back. He says, I've been baptized. I've, I've, my, my sins have been washed away. I, I'm, I'm no longer a liar or a thief anymore. And, 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 and he starts confessing some things, and they're like, wait, wait. You told me that you didn't do that. Oh, well, I, that was back when I was a liar. I'm, I'm not a liar anymore. <laughs> And oftentimes, this is how we look at conversion, that God wants us to forget about our past and do everything, and that's an appealing thing if you've done some shameful things in your life, right? (laughs) Amen. Thank Thank you, David. You know, when, when we have experienced things in our life, when we've made bad choices when we've done stuff to other people that has been destructive, done things to ourselves that's destructive, when we have even had bad things happen to us, we can oftentimes just develop such a shame and a self-hatred within that when we look at Jesus Christ, when we hear the pastor say, you know, in Christ you're a new creation, former things have passed away, we're like, yes. But to us that oftentimes means denial, 
Let's just leave that all behind us like the guy, oh, brother, where are they? I, hey, I'm not a liar. I'm not a cheat anymore. I'm on the straight and narrow. Well, he wasn't on the straight and narrow because if you watch the next few scenes, he's still a criminal on the run from the cops. What is Paul getting at here? If Paul was just saying that he's trying to forget his past and press on to Jesus, he wasn't doing a very good job of it because if we go a few verses up, In Philippians 3, we see that Paul actually recounts his former shameful life. He recounts his resume of all the things he used to be proud of. He lists them in what would end up becoming a part of the best-selling book of all time. So if if Paul is trying to forget something, he's failing at it. He says this, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Paul is talking about forgetting, but he's also remembering the things that he was ashamed of. What is going on here? Paul is saying, look, in my former life, I thought I was, I thought I was big stuff. He says, I wasn't a Jew. Because I converted to it, I was born into it. And my parents, even when I couldn't make the right choices, they did the proper rituals to get me in the right place in Judaism. And I grew up, and I wasn't just a Jew uh, in in terms of just your standard like person who would show up at at the temple and worship. He became a part of a religious order, the Pharisees. And not just... A member, he became a a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a leader of them. And not only was he a leader of the Pharisees, he was zealous to the point where he thought it was okay to persecute other people who didn't agree with him, even to the point of locking people up and having people executed. That's the type of person Paul was before he encountered Christ. We have a name for that type of person today. It's terrorist. You know, somebody who actually believes in killing other people because they don't have the same view of God as you, we call you a terrorist. What is going on 
with the Apostle Paul because he tells us to forget his past, and yet he is pulling up some of the most shameful things that he ever did. Well, I've got a bit of a theory on this, and I think what Paul is actually getting at is not forgetting the past, but being reconciled to the past, being reconciled to the worst version of yourself. You know, last year I got to interview somebody for my podcast who uh, was really pretty cool for me. Uh, There's an author, speaker, scholar guy named Brad Jerzak, and uh, I was at a conference where he was at, and I said, can, can I interview? And he's like, sure. And, and as we were doing the interview, he mentioned one of his mentors, a guy named Lazaro Pahalo. This is a Greek Orthodox priest, looks like Gandalf, and, um, and is wise like Gandalf. Uh, and Lazaro Pahalo said this, moral outrage is a form of confession, contemplate that for a minute. Moral outrage is a form of confession. Oftentimes, the things that we share our outrage on the most, the things that get us so, I got to go tweet this right now. I got to go let somebody on Facebook know. I got to call WWL and and yell at the phone. (laughs) Oftentimes, when there is intense moral outrage in our hearts, it says much more about us than it says about the thing we're outraged about. We're actually confessing to other people something that's going on on the inside. Maybe it's something that we struggle with. Maybe it's something that we're afraid of. Maybe it's something we're just afraid of ever even facing. I mean, how many times have we seen this over the years? I remember back in the in the early 80s, there was the rise of this new thing called tele-evangelists. And there, you know, you had Pat Robertson and Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, and it was a big thing. But so many of these tele-evangelists were known for moral outrage, right? They, they get on there and talk about how bad pornography and, and moral decay of the world was, and then that worked good until... Turns out, yeah, that dude's sleeping with prostitutes. Oh, yeah, that guy's embezzling money. And look, televangelists, that's pretty easy. That's the low-hanging fruit. It happens in business, though. It happens in politics. It happens everywhere. We see people that get elected to power. They, they rise to a position of prominence precisely because they express moral outrage, and yet we find out their moral outrage is actually a way of running away from the thing that they hate about themselves. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I suspect that's what's going on in the Apostle Paul's life before he met Jesus. If you are fueled by hatred so much that you're okay with killing another person because they believe in a different version of God than you do, you're running from something. There is something that you are completely afraid of on the inside. There's something you hate to look at. And that's just a symptom of it. You know, the first... If you look at the 12 steps, the first three steps of the 12 steps, the first step, I mean, they kind of describe conversion. The first step is, I came to believe that my life was unmanageable and out of control. 
It's kind of like where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, you've kind of, you finally come to a place to realize I'm poor spiritually. I don't have anything to offer. That's step one. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Step three, I surrendered my life and will over to God as I understood God. Those three steps, that speaks of conversion. That's, that's the typical story that you hear of conversion uh, in, in churches a lot of times. That was my story. You know, my life was out of control. I cried out to God. God saved me. But a lot of people in the church just stay there. And when it comes to their past life, they're so ashamed of the things that they did that they just try to deny it ever happened. They, they experience the moment of catharsis that, you know, confessing their sin to God. They experience the forgiveness of Jesus for, for, for what they've done. That is great. We need to experience that. But that won't really bring transformation in your life because if you never move on into the rest of the steps that you have to do, your religion can very much become the drug that replaces alcohol. Your religion can very much become the drug that replaces the things that you were denying over here, that you were, that you were into. I think this is what we see oftentimes televangelists. It's not that these people aren't sincere. It's not that Jimmy Swagger, he hated pornography. He hated it. He hated the power of lust because he experienced it in his own life. And he thought, if I come against it enough from right here, if I, if I just keep coming against it, maybe it won't have power in my life. The reality was, though, he wasn't solving the issues in his own heart. He was denying that they exist and hoping that through denial, he might have victory over them. But victory comes in a different way. Steps four through eight in the 12 steps say this. Number four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves and another human being, the exact exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. So often I see, and, and, I, and I see this not only in other people, this is my first decade of being a Christian. I went through the first three steps of the 12 steps, and then I jumped from that all the way to trying to help people. <laughs> we do it all the time, folks. I experienced the power of, of surrendering my life to God, and then I want other people to have this. But I didn't actually face my own darkness. I mean, I, other than confessing it to Jesus and I need help, but, but here's the problem. We can only confess that which we even see as sin in our life. And most of the time when you come to Jesus, you just confess the obvious sins like, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. We don't see our pride most of the time. We don't see our arrogance. We don't see the big sins. It takes a while. So steps four through eight really have to do with looking, facing, facing the darkness within us, 
facing that I chose to do these things that hurt other people. And maybe I chose to do them because I've been, I've, I've been hurt as well. You know, it's not, you know, we are victims of other people's choices as well, but owning it, you know, the famous, the famous, uh, commandments of Jesus are this. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says in Mark 12, 30, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And most oftentimes I've found when it comes to these two commandments, we think of love God and love people. And we, we usually have something on our wall over this. It says, love God and love people. But, but there's another love in there, right? Yourself. Can't love nobody if you don't love yourself. Because here's the deal. That, that, stuff, that stuff in our hearts, that darkness, that stuff that we don't want to face because we're afraid of it, or because we think if we just deny it long enough, it'll just, it'll just go away and nobody has to know. That stuff right there, it compromises our ability to love. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about self-love out there. And self-love is, is an odd thing because there's, there's narcissistic versions of it that are out there. <laughs> I just need to bless myself today. I just need to bless. I, I am worthy of blessing myself today. No. I just need to do, I just need to have a me party. You know, I think one of the best ways to understand self-love is self-care, self-compassion. You know, I, 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 last year around this time, I, I remember I was out camping and I, I was sitting out by the campfire one morning with a little notebook and I, I felt like God dropped this question to me, like, how can you love yourself? I'm like, honestly, I don't, I don't, it just sounds like a foreign concept to Christianity. You're not supposed to love yourself. That sounds like selfishness. That sounds like, you know, the wrong thing to do. But I really felt like God was calling me, what if you looked at yourself from the outside, knowing what you know about yourself, because nobody else knows you like you know yourself. What if you looked at yourself from the outside and says, what does Crispin actually need? I, I sat there for about 30 minutes asking that, and I had a big list. <laughs> Number one, Crispin needs some sleep. <laughs> but I, I, I went through this whole list, and I began to see, like, there are ways that I could love myself, and it was easier to kind of look at myself from the outside than to just experience it internally, you know, to, to actually look at myself subjectively, the way I might look at my wife or my kids and, and, and consider how might I best help them. But another aspect of self-love is learning to extend compassion to the parts of us that we are most ashamed of. You know, I I shared a little bit about this last week, but you know, and some of you may have had the experience, by the time I got into my early 30s, I was such a different person from myself in my mid-20s that I'm just like, oh my gosh, I was embarrassed of that dude. Not just embarrassed, I was ashamed. I'm like, how could that guy have been so confident and felt like he knew everything and he didn't know anything? (laughs) He had not lived any life. 
He was totally in his ego. And, and I was just like, I wanted to put that guy in the rearview mirror and get as far away from him as I could. But you know what? As I've come to learn to have compassion, even on the worst version of myself, as I've learned to have compassion and care for that person that I didn't like, that version of myself, guess what? I can have compassion for other people who may look like that version of myself. See, here's a good thing to ask yourself. When you encounter somebody that is just aggravating to you and like, I don't like this person. Maybe it's because you don't like that version of yourself. We can only show love to others to the extent we have shown love to ourselves. I will hate the things in you which I hate in myself. I will fear the things in you which I refuse to see in myself. See, part of the, the, the inward journey facing things within us, it's not morbid introspection. It's really trying to experience the love and grace of God in the darkest places and not just cover over them with a prayer and some denial, a side of denial. See, I believe what we see going on in the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 is a person who's not saying, He's forgetting who he was, but he's been reconciled to it. He can love even the terrorist version of himself. Can you, can you imagine how hard it would, you, know, you think you got some shame? You think you got some shame in your life? Imagine if you'd spent years like hunting down people that were Christians and killing them and separating their families. I mean, think of like if you had to work through that kind of stuff. That's where Paul was. But Paul learned to even accept and love and show compassion to that version of himself. And I think part of the evidence of this comes from 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Paul says this, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. I remember when I was a young Christian, I would read this and I'm like, it just sounded like Paul was a, a social chameleon, ch- chameleon, you know, like, like, you know, when I'm hanging out with the jocks at school, I'm like a jock. And then when I'm hanging out with the cheerleaders, I'm like a cheerleader. And then when I'm hanging out with the, did y'all have kickers, cowboys in high school here? Okay. Back in West Texas, we do. Um, you know, we, we know people who are like that, you know, who, and that's not like an admirable trait that you just kind of, you know, just fit in completely with whatever crowd you're in. That's not what really Paul is saying that I don't believe. I believe what Paul's getting at here is that because he has been reconciled to God in every aspect of his life, even the most shameful things, the things that he wanted to deny, the worst versions of himself, even because he's been reconciled, now he can draw on those things as a place 
of speaking into other people's lives. Every person in here, you may not think you could connect with a, a heroin addict, but everyone in here is an addict. Everyone is. Most of us are just addicted to things that, you know, you don't get in trouble for it. You get encouraged to do, you know. Work. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Work, shopping, iPhone. Oh, don't, no, 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 no. We ain't going to talk about that. <laughs> we get, okay, get thee behind me, <laughs> Satan. But as, <laughs> dang, it's getting rough up in here. <laughs> Moral outrage. <laughs> okay, we ain't talking about that today, though. But the truth is, until you realize your propensity towards addiction, you're going to think you're better than a heroin addict. You're going to think you're better. When you face that you have that stuff within you, guess what? You can show compassion to them. Any area of your life, you know, uh, that, that's the thing about living. You know, you live long enough, you get chances to, to get tested in every way. And I think that's, you know, that's part of, the, part of the good thing about living. But the reality is, as we face as we reconcile to ourselves, as we encounter the love, the grace, the mercy, the compassion of Christ in the deepest places within us, that vitriol, that angst, that fear underneath the surface that fuels our moral outrage begins to dissipate. And we can actually truly show compassion you know, it breaks my heart when I get on Twitter. I get on Twitter a couple of times a day just to look at the world, but I'm like, the way that people are treating each other, it's awful. And all it is is moral outrage. All it is is a bunch of people confessing, I've got hatred and angst and things in my own life that I am ashamed of and I don't even want to talk about and point their finger at other people. That stuff isn't, you may, and look, you may be right in your moral outrage. I'm not, I'm not talking about your truth claims one way or another. You may be right. But at the end of the day, the thing that's actually going to bring healing to our world is people who encounter the love of God in the depths of our being and can be conduits of that to other people. You don't stop judging people just because you try not to be judgmental you stop judging people because you've had an encounter with the love of God in the depths of your being. Why is Paul the, the apostle who talks about grace more than anybody else? <laughs> because he was a freaking terrorist before he encountered God. He was actually, he spent his life thinking that he was helping God only to find out he was opposing God. And when he encounters God, does he encounter God as a wrathful, angry deity who's, who's ready to strike him down on the spot? No, he encounters the grace of God, the love of God. So today, in closing, I just want to reflect on a couple of questions. Are there areas of shame, fear? <laughs> Sorry, this says roundedness. It's supposed to be woundedness. 
But if roundedness is your issue, <laughs> are there areas of shame, fear, or woundedness in my heart that need an encounter with the love and grace of God? And secondly, how might I live differently if I could truly love and show compassion to the worst version of myself? How might you live differently if you truly accepted and showed love to the worst part of yourself, the part that you don't want to tell anybody about, the part you're most ashamed of? What if you could experience the love of God? What if you could show mercy and acceptance and love to that part of yourself? How might that change you? And this week, when you go, when you're doing the stuff of your life, when you get tempted to vent your moral outrage, and I'm not saying having an opinion on issues is, is bad. Look, that's not bad. I'm just saying moral outrage, that's, that, that, we could see that as a check engine light. You know, when it is, when it is so fervent, <laughs> when it has some fire beneath it, ask yourself when that check engine light comes on, God, is there something within is there something within that needs to be reconciled to you? Is there something in, within that I need to reconcile to myself? Let's just stand up. Lord God, we thank you for your great love, for your great mercy. God, we ask that we could see our own lives the way you see us, Lord. Or that the compassion that you've shown to us, Lord, that we could even show to ourselves so that we could show love to other people. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your love, our hearts to know your love, our ears to hear your voice, your loving voice speaking to us, Lord. You could put us on a path that would help us extend that love to the deepest places within, Lord. In Jesus.